Welcome to season four of the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, with your host, India Lorick Wilmot. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Galactic Trailblazer, Dr. Bernard Harris Jr. Bernard is a Black scientist, surgeon, and retired NASA astronaut. For 10 years of his career, Bernard worked at NASA's Johnson Space Center as a clinical scientist and flight surgeon, where he conducted clinical investigations of space adaptation and developed in-flight medical devices to extend astronaut stays in space. On his second mission in February 1995, just about 28 years ago, Bernard was the payload commander on STS-63, the first flight of the new joint Russian-American space program. This flight was historic all around. During the flight, Dr. Bernard Harris became the first African-American to walk in space, while fellow astronauts Michael Fole became the first British-born spacewalker, and Eileen Collins became the first female shuttle pilot. As an astronaut, Bernard logged more than 438 hours in space and traveled almost 7.2 million miles. While space is the final frontier, Bernard has chosen to engage in works that continue to explore, discover, and promote innovation that lead future generations to go where no one has gone before. After retiring from NASA in 1996, Bernard has devoted his career to math and science education for over 25 years through his philanthropy and investment strategies. He has served as a vice president of SpaceHab Incorporated, was vice president of business development for Space Media Incorporated, establishing an international space education program for students became founder of the Harris Foundation, a Houston, Texas-based nonprofit organization whose mission is to invest in community-based initiatives to support education, health, and wealth, vice president and president of the American Telemedicine Association, just to name a few. With such an impressive career to date, it should come as no surprise that Bernard is the recipient of several esteemed awards and recognitions, including the NASA Space Flight Medal, NASA Award of Merit, a Fellow of the American College of Physicians, and the Horacio Alger Award. In addition to authoring the book Dreamwalker, Bernard is currently Executive Director of the National Math and Science Initiative, which focuses on efforts to improve teacher effectiveness and student achievement. Bernard is managing partner of Vesalius Venture Incorporated, a venture capitalist accelerator that invests in early stage companies in medical informatics and technology. There are no bounds in this Milky Way for Dr. Bernard Harris. Welcome. Thank you, Andrea. So, of course, I'm always eager to talk to many of my guests and to learn more about their journey of belonging to Blackness thus far. And for you especially, we have a lot of ground to cover. So are you ready? I'm ready. Right about now. Act one. Call to adventure. This is a breakdown. In your book, Dreamwalker, a journey of achievement and inspiration, you described yourself as a dreamer who believes nothing is impossible. So 
for the audience, please take us back to the young boy born in Temple, Bell County, Texas, in the mid-1950s, a small town which at the time had no more than 30,000 people and was known for being a hospital hub of the Southwest. What I do know is that you also grew up on Navajo Nation. So what or who inspired you to become a scientist, a surgeon, and astronaut? Well, that is a deep question. And what I mean by that is it's a lot more to it than what you just read, of course. When I was six years old, my parents divorced and that caused us to transition. I remember when we left, I didn't know, you know, what sort of place we were going to. And I should back up and say that prior to that, of course, you mentioned that I was born in Temple, but I was actually born in Temple by accident, if I can put it that way. My mother was visiting my grandmother who lived in Temple. We were actually living in Houston at the time. So I came early. I was born in a clinic in Temple, Texas. They still claim me, but actually all the all of my other siblings and family members are in Houston. And so Houston really was home. We lived in an area called the West Side for, as I mentioned, about six years prior to my parents divorcing. That was a pivotal moment for me because I got to get my first lesson in life, and that was how education provides you options. My father only had 11th grade education. My mother had a bachelor's degree from Prairie and m University. And so when things got rough, she exercised her options, and education provided that for her. So through some fits and starts, we returned to Temple for a bit as she got her land lakes together. And then she found the job working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And that was a godsend. And I always think about this when I tell the story. You'll think about a 25, 26-year-old, maybe at the time with three kids, moving to Arizona, New Mexico. And this is where the Navajo Nation is by herself. This is the first time she had ever been out of the state of Texas. And so brave woman, brave woman. But that's how we ended out there. I describe the place as a land of painted deserts and grand canyons, wonderful skies. And that's how my vision, my idea, my dream of becoming an astronaut began, by just looking up at the heavens in a place that had no light pollution. It was wonderful. That sounds lovely. I would consider one of the wonders of the world to go out to the canyon. The typography and the limitlessness of the skies, as you described. And I can also imagine, too, that during your childhood, presumably out on Navajo Nation where you lived, that you had access to television, you were able to watch Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin or Buzz <laughs> go to the moon and have the first moonwalk. I think if I have my math right, you were about 13 years old in 1969. As a child, you know, you can go out to your backyard and look up at the sky and your imagination would have no bounds, but then to actually see folks on television in black and white actualize these dreams. So what was that like? And do you think in many ways that inspired your own professional pursuit? Oh, it certainly did. 13 years old, I watched Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin land on the moon, and I was captivated. We had a little black and white television. And I remember watching it. I was like, this is fantastic. You know, it was a way in which you just mentioned to put together my dream of traveling in space with reality. And so that just sort of set it in my head. When I'm talking, young people always talk about aspirations. And one of the things you need for aspirations and dreams to be fulfilled is to have them touch your heart and head. And so my head was all about space. 
I was a space cadet. Star Trek came out when I was young. Buck Rogers, I read books, Isaac Asimov, looked at every mission during that period of time that went to space that culminated in us landing on the moon. And so I was hooked. But when I saw Neil and Buzz land on the moon, that head decision about becoming an astronaut became a heart decision. I think you need those two in order to get through the next few years that I was going to have facing me. The other thing I want to mention during this time period is that this was in the 60s and we had just passed the Civil Rights Act earlier in the 60s. And I could see two things on that television. One was the greatest accomplishment in humankind, men landing on the moon. And the other was the struggle that we had as African-Americans. And so I also watched Martin Luther King and some of the early civil rights leaders. And I sometimes wonder, what was this 13-year-old, actually it started even in elementary school, what was going through this 13-year-old's mind as it was looking at these two things, this aspiration of becoming an astronaut when there were no African-American astronauts that I saw, or even any Blacks or minorities even working in the program. And so it took a leap of faith. And that really speaks to the importance of representation in so many ways that I think today's generation may acknowledge and appreciate, but can also take for granted. That's why I didn't want to presume one's access to television, because that's also a marker of class, social class, to be able to have television in order to be able to watch something like the first moonwalk. But still to actualize this dream that you were still kind of fantasizing about in many ways, and then seeing yourself in that and pursuing so much more. And so what I do know about your background, and of course you can fill us in, a young Bernard would later attend the University of Houston and Texas Tech University School of Medicine and go on to complete his residency in internal medicine at the Mayo Clinic, a National Research Council Fellowship in Endocrinology at the NASA Ames Research Center, and then also subsequently train as a flight surgeon at the Aerospace School of Medicine, all before joining NASA (laughs) in 1991. You were very busy. So I think would be helpful because my audience ranges the gamut in terms of age and exposure. But I think what would be really neat for the audience to learn is if you could perhaps describe the type of work you conducted as a mission specialist, the type of training that's required and what it was like to prepare for your first mission once you were accepted into NASA. I would assume with all the training that you'd received that all of these incremental experiences helped to prepare you for the journey that you were about to embark upon at that time. Yeah, if I was to sum up what you just went through, that aspect of life, I was driven and I was intentional, intentional in going to college, intentional in going to medical school and residency. In residency, I started working on my master's because I knew I wanted to do research in space, space space-related research. And I purposely applied to the National Research Council for a fellowship in endocrinology to study bone loss as it occurs in space. So I wanted to become the expert so that NASA would have no excuse when I decided to apply to the astronaut corps to not select me because of inexperience. No, I was very experienced. So in 1990, after doing work at NASA at Johnson Space Center, actually I've worked both at Ames starting out where my fellowship was, and then at Johnson Space Center, where I started my real research career, I helped to build a lot of the medical equipment that's in the International Space Station right now in terms of exercise and countermeasures and medical devices. I was prepared. 
And so in 1990, I uh, applied to the astronaut corps and got accepted. And as an astronaut, you go through one to two years. Now I think it's up to two years of basic training it was one year when I was there, where you learn how to fly jets, you learn how to fly the shuttle, your backup crew members, of course, of the shuttle. I was a flight engineer for both of my missions, which meant I not only trained for the scientific investigations that would go up in space, but I also trained to be part of the flight team as we lifted off in the space. Once you go through all that basic training, then you are prepared to be selected to go on a mission. Many people don't know that when you get selected for a mission, that mission preparation is usually one to two and up to three years before you fly because the missions are so complicated. My first mission had 91 different investigations, experiments that we did on orbit. The second one had about 40 or so. And that second one was also did spacewalk. So you imagine I'm doing all of this flight training. I'm doing all of the scientific training. It takes time. So we not only do training for what happens normally, but we also do off-nominal training. So many people don't realize we probably spend four hours for every hour of nominal training in abnormal, you know, what happens if things go wrong. And so we're pretty prepared once we go into space. You spoke just a few minutes ago about the type of intentionality in terms of the pathway that you decided to take specifically around endocrinology, specifically around applying for NASA and going through the whole entire process and preparation just to even be considered and to be accepted. And even once you're there, where would you really say that that source for your intentionality came from? And I say this because I think we might even have folks who are older perhaps middle age, who are still in search of their purpose. But it seemed very early on for you that there was clear and precise notion around, well, what is my purpose and the intentionality as to why you chose the path you chose? Because everyone's path is a little bit different and there are oftentimes challenges, perhaps sometimes roadblocks, but still you were steadfast on your goal. So where do you think that came from? That is a good question, and it's one that I get from, you know, a lot of young people and old people, for that matter, who come to see me either at a speaking engagement or just one-on-one. And you mentioned something that I think it's important. A lot of people go through life, and they don't realize their dream. Life comes up. It's their environment. It's the forces that they may have to work against. It's the expectations that we have. And we know that as Black people, those stereotypes are not always positive. And so that affects us in a big way. So part of my new mission, my terrestrial mission, is to try to help people realize who they are. And so I always remind people that you are an infinite being with infinite possibilities. What that means is that each of us in this world was born multipotential with the ability to do anything that we want to do in life. We have to remind ourselves of that. Each of us are born multi-talented. And those of us who have kids know that you can have two kids come out of the same litter and they are just different, right? And in that difference, they're born with it. Somehow, if they're able to utilize those, recognize those talents, and then use their brain to learn even more talents, that's what education is all about, then they can become whatever it is they want to be. 
But I think more importantly for me, and it had to come real early, and it came from probably my mother and my family support, my Christian family, I never doubted that I wasn't born for a reason. Hmm. So we're all born for a reason. We all have gifts to give to this world. First, the gift to give to yourself in discovering who you are, and then to use that as a foundation to give to your community and to give to the world around you, no matter where you reside on this planet. That's beautiful. To really ingest and internalize the fact that you are blessed with these abilities. It's already in you. It's just up to you and the resources around you and what you have access to, to actualize and to build off of that. Our job as adults, as educators, is to provide that environment that nurtures that in young people, in people in general. Also, I think it's important for us to recognize that there are going to be challenges. There are going to be issues. Early on, I knew that there were going to be obstacles along the way, and I got rid of that word, changed it to challenges. Mm -hmm. Challenges has a different perspective. When you have a challenge, you rise up to overcome that. And so I learned that very early. And again, I have to give my mother credit, have to give my family credit for that. As I mentioned in your intro, your second mission was a historic flight. Did you know this mission was markedly different from your first? You talked about just a range of different kinds of tasks that you're both training for, and then also the experiments that you're required to do when you're up out in space. But was it different from the first? And I guess what would be really neat too would be if you could describe the moment when you realized that this mission was not just a culmination of your work and of those that supported you to date, but also how this moment was even bigger than you. We went to the Russian space station, visited our fellow Russian cosmonauts that were in in orbit. And then some days later, I did the spacewalk. And to be honest, I was so inundated with the training, flight training. I had payload training. I was a payload commander. I had EVA training. EVA stands for extravehicular activity. That's the spacewalk when we talk about spacewalk. And so that training is done underwater. So you spend a lot of time on water training because it simulates being in space. So all of that was on my mind and not the fact that I would become the first African-American to walk in space. In fact, it wasn't until probably, I think it was the day before our mission, we got a call and a discussion around some of the things we were being prepared for, which was the spacewalk and some of the other things that we're doing. And I just remember during that time period, we got a call from the ground that President Clinton was going to give us a call. And I was like, ooh, what am I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> Michael Full and I were kind of caught off guard, <laughs> to be, be honest. And so anyway, we received a call from President Clinton, all three of us. It was a wonderful call. And I remember uh, the president thanking me for our efforts and things like that. And congratulations on becoming the first African-American to walk in space. And I said, thank you, Mr. President. I may be the first, but I won't be the last. And that was poetic in the sense that one other African-American, Robert Kirbyn, actually has a record for the most EVAs on a single flight, four or five of them. So a lot of folks, Winston was behind me, Bob Kerbane, and everybody, a lot of African-Americans now that are in the program. About 23 of us have gone, have become astronauts. You know, we're making a mark now. 
to The Road. I enjoy asking my guests playful questions. And so one of my favorite is to ask, well, how is it that you play? I know that you are a licensed private pilot and a certified scuba diver, but how else do you play? I do not play enough. (laughs) As you could probably tell from my history, I am focused and I'm trying to learn how to play more. I do belong to a diving club and we dive different places around the world in terms of playing. I think one of my other activities that I do that relaxes me is I exercise six days a week, both weightlifting and running. Used to be a runner. Now (laughs) I'm an elliptical guy and going to learn how to swim. One of the things that I find relaxing is going to special places. And I have a special place in Montana. It's owned by some friends of ours. And it's just a getaway spot. My new place is one that I actually bought in California, in Sonoma. It's a farm. And so I've become a farmer. And that is sort of my happy place out there. I'm farming and growing grapes. And hopefully they will become wine. They sell the grapes to a winery and the winery makes the wine in what's called vineyard designated wine. So that's my new hobby. And the last thing I would probably say is that my life partner, Valerie, and I love going to spas. A good massage is worth it. That's right. You can't beat that. And I hope for you that the same pastime that you enjoyed as a child by looking up the night sky, especially is something that you continue to enjoy, especially in places like Montana. Montana is called the land of big skies. And Mm. so certainly. And then our place in California also is beautiful. I remember standing out with my daughter. We were standing out and looking up at the heavens. And she said, oh, my God. I hadn't seen stars like that because she grew up in Houston for the most part, you know, with a lot of light pollution. So I started pointing to different constellations and saying, this is that constellation. And look at the Milky Way and look at all that sort of thing. And then she stops. She looks at me and goes, Dad, I didn't need a lecture. (laughs) (laughs) I was just saying how beautiful the stars were. She said, full stop. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm sure you miss it in many ways, but I would think that since retiring from NASA, you've continued to work diligently to fulfill a passion and purpose around youth, self-empowerment and self-determination, as you've also already started to talk about and allude to in terms of speaking with the young people. So how does this passion and purpose continue to comport with your own personal journey? I look at reaching out to particularly young people who are just starting out life, not only my mission, but it's my ministry. Mm. And I alluded to earlier, my extraterrestrial mission was going in space. My terrestrial mission is what I do here on Earth. Very few of us, if you look at the billions of people on this planet, have the opportunity to go into space. And why not use that? as a platform in which to talk about the impotence of all of us and to be able to use that to access young people in a different way and touch them, not only to uh, inspire them, but to get them to aspire to become whatever it is they want. One of my sayings is that dreams are the reality of the future, meaning that if we're to have a future, We must set goals and we must visualize it and we must focus on it 
and have to be intentional about, there's that word again, intentional about what we do and the direction which we're headed. And if we're not, then it becomes very easy for folks to come in and to get you off track if you don't have your mind made up. One of our programs in the Harris Foundation is a program called Dare to Dream. And in that, we identify kids that are, I'd say, off level, that they may be problem children, as I put, may have some behavioral issues. And then we combine them with kids that are on level, that are doing well, and we make them part of a group and we call them mission specialists. I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> and their mission is to make right choices and the focus on STEM education, because I believe STEM education is what we need in our communities around the country. And so that program has done extremely well through the years in helping folks get their bearings. That's really important to me. So if you could compare and contrast for us, what do you see as some of the challenging issues that specifically African descended youth face? You talked a little bit about STEM as part of your own philanthropic endeavors and presumably the venture capital projects that you're also engaged in combined intend to provide opportunities for overcoming some of these issues. But what do you think are some of the challenges that you've been seeing over the last 25 years? The main challenge, I think, for our community is one of our own uh, self-perception. We get inundated daily Mm. by negative stereotypes. Imagine growing up in the 60s where you saw we were fighting just for our rights. If you remember some of the signs that said, I'm a man, you know, basically saying, I am not an animal. As a young person, I had to overcome that too. You asked me earlier, how did I do all this? How did I put all these things together? It's because I was forced to. Some part of me would not allow me to buy into that stereotype. When I decided that I wasn't going to buy into that stereotype, I was then going to be an achiever. I was going to do things that would prove them wrong, uh, those others. And when I was in college, we call it the man, holding <laughs> <laughs> us back. And I was going to prove that that was not going to happen to me. And so if you look at our foundation programs, education, health, and wealth, I took a hard look on what are those key things that would enable our community, in fact, all communities to thrive. And that is having a great education, number one, having the ability to be educated. Health, because our communities also suffer, as we saw during the pandemic, we suffer the most when there are issues around healthcare. And so having great healthcare. The third is wealth. We have to build wealth in our communities in order to move our communities forward in college. I took a Black economics course taught by a Black entrepreneur who happened to have funeral homes, Johnson Funeral Homes in Houston, Texas. He posed a question to the class and he says, is the plight of the Black people a Black or white issue? And then he let us just contemplate that in that Black economics course, wasn't all just Black. We had Black kids and white kids and Hispanic kids. So the black kids were saying the man is holding us down. The white kids are saying, you know, it's been 300 years, get over it. And the Hispanic kids were saying, you know, we're not in this. <laughs> it's between the two of you. I always like to joke and say that way. Here's a point. At the end, 
He said, this is not a black and white issue. It's a green and gold issue. Mm. Who holds the gold and who holds the green, who holds the money? And that stuck in my head. So when I got through accomplishing my first dream of becoming an astronaut, flying in space and spacewalking and all that sort of thing, what's next that was instilled in me from that professor was the need to build wealth and the need to give back and help our community. What you mentioned was really important, I think, because in many ways, it's that self-determination component that's necessary when it comes to our own wealth development, accumulation and building and transference for generations and that sort of thing. We need to change our mindset from just going from day to day, you know, managing for today or for tomorrow, for the first quarter, but think long term and build generational wealth. So when we build wealth for ourselves, allow that wealth to be transferable so that end kids in all of our communities can have that as a foundation to build upon. When I compare and contrast the time in which you grew up, where you're seeing a lot, you're hearing a lot, everything from thinking about Emmett Till going down south for the summer to visit family and what became a pivotal point in even civil rights and social justice, the maltreatment that we experience as a people, and then all the other mobilization efforts through King and others. And then you fast forward to Black Lives Matter of today, where I think a lot of folks that are listening, including young people, this is their civil rights point. There are so many strides for African-descended folks in terms of wealth accumulation and having folks like Oprah and others who are millionaires that you can accumulate, you can strive, you can achieve, yet there's still so many things that remain constant in terms of the disparity, in terms of the inequity, in terms of the challenges that you still have Black and brown communities that are food deserts, they're healthcare deserts, mortality rates are high, our incarceration rates are high relative to our <laughs> numeric percentage of the general population. As many things have improved and gotten better, there still remain a lot of the endemic challenges that face us as a people. Amen, sister. You captured it all. The only thing I would add is STEM deserts. So you know, a large part of my philanthropy is education. And it is not just education for education's sake, but specifically in STEM. Because in the 21st century, technology drives everything. Just think about we're having this podcast, which is based on technology. We have to connect the dots for our young people to let them know that the things in which they're learning in school is not just for learning's sake, it's for a purpose. For them to get an education, to get a good job and be able to take care of themselves and to build their own wealth. And then that translates into community wealth and that translates to wealth for this nation. And that applies not only for Blacks, but it applies for every race, ethnicity that's out there. When you look at the different ethnicities that are there, we are down on the lower rung when it comes to not only education, but STEM education in particular. And one of the things that we are doing at the National Math and Science Initiative is we have a vision of transforming STEM. And what that means is making sure that at the beginning, there is high quality STEM education being offered to all communities in this nation, particularly for the Black and Brown and Native American communities, those communities that are suffering the most. And we hope that that translates into getting those good paying jobs, highest paying jobs are STEM related jobs. I'm an astronaut. 
my head is always in the stars and in the future. And very shortly, we're going to be involved in expanding platforms in low Earth orbit, going to the moon and Mars. All of those are technology-based. And you see all of this investment from Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and there's a whole host of millionaires. People say, well, you know, why are they millionaires spending their money? They're spending their money because they know that space is the next industrial revolution. It's the next economy, the space economy. If our communities, those black communities, those brown communities, those native communities are not prepared, we are going to be literally left here on earth. And what I mean by that is also economically, we will not be at the pinnacle of where society is moving forward. So when I say like terrestrial mission, it's a serious mission for me. I appreciate that. When I think about the kind of work that you've done today, both as an astronaut and as a scientist and physician, as well as a venture capitalist, I'm quite curious to hear from you what you think you want your legacy to be and what do you think your next moonshot will be? When I think about the next quarter of my life, I made a decision a few years ago that that focus would be in transforming education, trying to prepare our communities for this future where space is going to be dominating. I like to tell people that even if you don't want to go to space, it's going to have a serious impact over the next few years. My mission is to deliver that message to as many communities as I can. I talked about education, health, and wealth. The foundation of all of those things is STEM education. And what I mean by that, STEM is involved in helping not only delivering health care and providing health care, it's involved in research. STEM's involved in building wealth science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, that mathematics part really is applied in finance too, and building wealth. We've got to make that clear. We've got to connect the dots, particularly for young people. We've got to get our communities focused on what is going to be long-term. You know, the old uh, edict that you can give a person a fish, but if you teach them to fish, you know, you affect their life for a long time. That's what I want to do is I want to get out there and not only educate people, educate our communities, but to teach them how to continue to grow as an individual. And I know I'm repeating myself, if we can impact that one individual and we can change that life, it is a domino effect. Get it Act three, where we land. So, Dr. Bernard Harris Jr., we've reached a point in my show where I ask all of my guests, what's next? Where can people learn more and be engaged? If folks who are listening are investors, those who are practitioners, those who are very community-minded and focused, who also agree in the ways in which STEM education is critical to our future, both terrestrial as well as extraterrestrial where can they find you, the foundation, your organizations? Where can they learn more? You can go to my foundational website, and that'll point you to everything else, including the Math and Science Initiative. And that is the harrisinstitute.org. So the harrisinstitute.org. I'm also on Facebook, 
We have um, NIMSI, as we call the National Math and Science Initiative, but also the foundation. My second book will be coming out soon. My first book was basically a memoir, and I put some motivational type things kind of peppered along, and I have a chapter, one of the last chapters where I talked about your inner strength and discovering who you are. And so I wanted to spend more time on that. So the whole book is dedicated to enabling that individual that I talked about mm -hmm. to find themselves, to grow, to learn how to set goals, to set dreams and ambitions, to discover that infinite being with infinite possibility that I talked about. I'm hoping that that could be a platform on individual progress and accomplishment. That book is certainly written for everyone, but in my mind, I particularly like to have the people of color read that book and take those tidbits that I've learned in the 66 years that I've been on this planet. Well, we'll definitely be on the lookout for your book and follow you on Facebook and on your website. So thank you for joining us and sharing your journey of belonging to Blackness, Dr. Harris. Thank you. My pleasure. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.